with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's program, we'll talk about what are the key roles BRICS countries can play in promoting global economic recovery, and we will also take a look at China-U.S. trade relations and tariff issues. So now, let's begin with our top story. Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for efforts to build a community with a shared future of mankind. He made the remarks in Beijing during his keynote speech while attending the opening ceremony at the Virtual BRICS Business Forum. He also stressed the importance of inclusiveness, openness, and integration to forestall an economic crisis. He says countries should stay committed to the representation of emerging markets. So, for more on this, join us on the line. Now, uh, Liu Baocheng, professor with the University of International Business and Economics, and also Anna Tangen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. So, first of all, Baocheng, we've heard President Xi's speech at the opening ceremony of the Virtual BRICS Business Forum. So, what are your main takeaways from it? Uh, he has uh, reiterated the fact that、uh, we are facing much of the challenges on the global arena. And now、uh, it is high time、uh, for us to get、uh, united and build a cohesion、uh, between、uh, the developing countries,、uh, actually led by the BRICS countries, because they are the、uh, biggest emerging economies that are put together on a common platform.、Uh, it's there to defend the global peace and、uh, security, and in the meantime to promote the、uh, multilateralism. And、uh, also to、uh, be there to implement the United Nations、uh, Sustainable Development Agenda, and、uh, he particularly pinpointed the fact that、uh, hegemonism or you know the uh, 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 unilateral uh, type of uh, uh, proposition to build blocks uh, to uh, drive the participation from other members away. Is the one that is there to build a dead end for themselves. So, have, you know,、uh, this is message is uh, uh, very important in pointing to the、uh, current reality, and uh, uh, that is there to boost the、uh, further deepened cooperation between BRICS countries and together、uh, with the business community all along. Mm. And Ina, so the president reiterated importance of multilateralism. Now, as protectionism is rising in parts of the world, do you think that BRICS can become safety net for developing economies as we ride out this global headwinds together? Yes, I do. I mean,、uh, the BRICS are really the the biggest symbol of a multilateral political and economic reality. Because you know what were at one time the BRICS when they first came out, where everyone just said, "Oh, it's just a grouping of、uh, resource countries plus China," but now it has evolved into much more because of the absence of leadership,、uh, especially from Europe and,、uh, and the U.S. The、uh, G7 provided nothing, and when I say that, I mean nothing for a global you know、uh, solution. Uh, the, the talk was all about internal issues, what was important to America and, and Europe. It was also very different about this. Is that 
the BRICS actually are doing something. So at this juncture, you have a very, very stark contrast between BRICS, which is talking about development and the needs of the people, not only their people, but the entire world, versus the U.S., who's talking about security and how to uh, create uh, alliances to hem in uh, anybody they don't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the BRICS is now entering a new age with high-quality development, and President Xi Jinping called for enterprises and entrepreneurs to keep innovating. So, Bao Cheng, how can the uh, entrepreneurship play a sustainable role in BRICS partnerships? I think that's a very important point because uh, uh, BRICS countries uh, are uh, there to meet very frequently with ministers and top leaders to discuss about the uh, general concept of uh, shared future, etc., uh, etc. Et this is important to pave the road, but uh, who are there to drive on the road? It's really uh, more of those businesses. So therefore, uh, businesses uh, are there to enjoy uh, such sort of enabling environment the uh, government level have really created. So, uh, you know, through the uh, New Development Bank, and that's a business entity, uh, although it's really uh, now popped by, uh, initially by the government, but uh, the private and uh, private uh, and public partnership uh, is something that is also required to further boost its uh, uh, capacity. And uh, uh, actually, all along, the uh, even before the BRICS, with their businesses play a very important role. But now, uh, with the uh, right type of platform that is set up uh, on a rule-based. Uh, uh, collaboration between these uh, countries at the government level, so businesses can really uh, be there to enjoy a more uh, predictable and transparent environment for their uh, business operations. So uh, I think now, uh, so far, China plays a uh, crucial role in their uh, in the infrastructure development and also with its, uh, uh, mammoth power of imports and exports. And so uh, the uh, advantages of uh, uh, different countries like, you know, Russia, Brazil are very rich with natural resources. The uh, South Africa, even if their economy is not very strong, uh, they still have their advantage as a shipping hub, etc. So uh, it is now, you know, the uh, for business to roll out and to uh, engage in a deepened collaboration. Um, but of course, you know, the government will still have to step up uh, with more of the rule-based uh, operation. And that's something that, uh, you know, leaders can really work out uh, for a better transparency and predictability for businesses. Mm. And Aina, so the BRICS aims to serve as a bridge between the industrialized economies and developing economies and to foster sustainable growth. So how can businesses better take advantage of this platform for their own growth? Well, I mean, there's, there's a number of ways. First off, they have this new industrial revolution uh, thing that's been working on since... Uh, uh, 2018. And what they've done now is they've uh, solidified that with the uh, MOU with the BRICS Bank. Now, it, that doesn't sound very exciting to a lot of people, but what it means is that they're actually putting money behind this new industrial revolution. And, and, and as uh, Professor Liu put it, 
this is about turning things into reality. It's fine to have concepts, it's fine to talk about supporting uh, these small business entities, et cetera, et cetera, and helping uh, developing countries. Uh, but how are you going to do that? And that, that is requiring financing. And this is where the BRICS have been working all uh, slowly all along, increasing their trust levels uh, gradually over time, kind of like you know the approach for RCEP, uh, getting people comfortable with each other so that you can go forward. Trust is the universal coinage of government cooperation and business cooperation and personal cooperation. So mm. that's how they're doing it. Now, in terms of um, actually pushing along how smaller entities, I think they're going to have to start looking at ways in which the transactional costs can be lowered, uh, not only in terms of red tape, but in also in terms of the fees being charged. And a lot of that, I think, is going to go with this digital currency that uh, China is putting out there. And it's not just China. Every one of the countries involved has also indicated that they're interested in a, a digital currency, a national digital that will allow them, as I said, to cut these barriers so that it's easier for a, uh, a very small business uh, that perhaps sells a, a particular brand of coffee that they think is very good in Brazil to actually connect that directly to China. With mm. the logistics in place, they can move that along very, very nicely. And those are the types of things that will be very important to these developing countries as they contribute. Mm. You mentioned digital currency. So how do you think the BRICS can improve its trade and payments mechanism now? Because commodity and capital markets are roiled by the geopolitical tensions. Well, the value is, is not a, a, an issue. I mean, it's not solved by digital currencies. What they do is it just lowers the cost. So whatever the uh, relative values between them, it does lower it. Now, the BRICS bank itself is one of the means by which uh, these countries got together and, you know, when they they saw the lessons of the Asian financial crisis and they determined not to let a liquidity crisis drive their, um, you know, their uh, the currencies down. So they created a mechanism that allows each country to contribute money that could be used, in essence, to uh, you know, basically calm the waters as necessary, especially against, you know, short sellers like Soros who are trying to take advantage of, of bad news in order to, uh, you know, kind of feather their own nest. So, you know, it's, it's uh, a complete approach that is very much lacking from the U.S. side and Europe side right now. The mm. developed countries seem to have just said, we don't have time for the rest of the world. We have our own problems. And we're cutting you af uh, adrift. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, the you know BRICS have come together and said we're all in this together, and we need to figure out how to get out of it together. Mm -hmm. And Bao Cheng, so in the past the sixteen years, the three wheels of the economy, the trade, political security, and people-to-people -people exchanges have driven the BRICS cooperation. So tell us about these cooperation areas and what impacts do they have in terms of uh, facing challenges and pushing for the global development. Uh, well, in terms of trade, uh, despite of all the challenges given the pandemic, given the original conflict, the uh, uh, trade between the uh, BRICS countries have really surged by nearly 40 percent. So uh, this is a very strong evidence that uh, uh, the BRICS collaboration has been really working well. And uh, uh, also the, through the uh, information sharing at the custom houses, the uh, facilitation of uh, uh, the custom clearance really helped to reduce the cost of doing business. 
So there's a lot more to do to really to help uh, those businesses and particularly on those uh, you know small and medium-sized businesses uh, in terms of the uh, coordination of their financial policy uh, in coordination of uh, the enabling uh, conditions for them to thrive and particularly now in a digital world uh, with e-commerce and with uh, digital currency are there. So this the ample opportunity for uh, innovation and also for the growth of unicorns, hopefully. Mm. So, Aina, earlier you mentioned the new development bank and it serves to promote the uh, sustainable growth in BRICS countries. So how can financial cooperation like this serve as a backbone of the transition towards uh, green and low-carbon development? Well, I mean, you're looking at 60% of the world's population, only about 25% of the world's GDP. But uh, when you start talking about the impacts of the 60%, obviously it's huge. And that really is about infrastructure. You have to switch to sustainable uh, you know, sources of energy. Uh, and, and this is what you know, is necessary. You, you have to have money to do that. Uh, the best way of doing that is pooling funds, all right? not only for the BRICS themselves, but also you know, in cooperation with other efforts, other banks, uh, the BRICS are, don't stand alone. They do projects with the Asian Development Bank, with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, uh, with the World Bank IMF. This is the whole point. There's such a huge gap in what is necessary to move us towards a, a new greener economy, especially when you start considering how much coal uh, is going to be figuring into the equation because of the spikes in oil and gas prices and things like this driven by the uh, you know, by uh, the situation in Ukraine. You know, th- these are the things that, that you have to have money. If you don't have money, you're going to do it. We've actually reached a point where the, it's less expensive to have renewable energies mm. uh, than it is to have coal. But the issue is how quickly I can get coal uh, almost immediately and I can burn it and I can get energy. Renewables takes an investment and that takes time. It takes effort to put it in, uh, time to put it in, and then you have to wait to recoup your investment over the time, whereas the mines are already set up. So there is this real imperative to put money into this if you're going to not only address the concern, but address you know, possibly a extinction level event. Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute and Liu Baocheng with the University of International Business and Economics. And after a short break, we'll take a look at China-U.S. trade relations and the tariffs issue. Stay with us. Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoyed the debates we had and look forward to many more in the years to come. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. The Biden administration is reportedly weighing the removal of some tariffs on Chinese imports to combat the escalated inflation in the U.S. 
Data shows that the U.S. Consumer Price Index increased by 8.6% in May. That's a record high since the 1980s. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said in June some reductions may be warranted, adding it could help to bring down the prices. So how will the removal of some tariffs affect the U.S. economy and the current inflation issue? And why are there different opinions within the U.S. government? For more on this, we are talking with Liu Bao. Cheng, professor with UIBE, and also Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. So Ina, Janet Yellen said some reductions may be warranted, adding it could help to bring down prices. And according to a research from the Peterson Institute for International Economics, a two percentage point tariff equivalent reduction could deliver a one-time reduction of 1.3 percentage points in inflation. So when Trump started the trade war, did his advisors foresee the impact on inflation? Well, his advisors is a kind of funny idea because his advisor was Peter Navarro, who is a representative of an economic school of one himself. Uh, he's considered uh, a pariah by ev- every established uh, economist out there. He was actually selected not because of his intellectual background, but simply because he agreed with everything that Donald Trump said. Uh, so when you say advisors, I-, I-, I think you have to kind of look at that loosely. Trump thought that he was making a strong stand. His simple- simplistic idea of economics was that he could somehow force companies back to the United States to produce. He did not tame the deficit as he said he was going to. It's higher than it was when he started. It's gone up by multiples. And, and quite frankly, he didn't drive uh, any jobs back to the United States. And instead, he just punished American consumers who basically absorbed 95% of the tariffs that the U.S. put on were paid for by U.S. consumers. So mm-hmm. it was a complete failure. And what you have now is Biden you know, questioned the tariffs on the campaign trail, but did not have the political fortitude to do anything when he came into office. So now he's uh, embroiled with, a, you know, huge inflation. He knows this is the most negative thing politically that he's facing. And Janet Yellen, who she just didn't come out and say that she has been saying this all along. You could go back and start looking at her, at her uh, speeches and things like that. She has said, it doesn't make sense to have these tariffs. It's just adding cost to American public. It's not helping anything, and it's not reducing uh, you know, uh, the deficits, and it's not bringing jobs to America. This is it's complete uh, non sequitur. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is that there's a battle between her and Catherine Tsai, who's the U.S. Trade Representative, who says, "Well, you're undercutting my political leverage with China," and I don't know where she thinks she's going uh, with her political leverage. But she insists that this is necessary for her to, quote, do her job. So this is the internal conflict which they're struggling to come to terms with. In the end, Biden will go with the tariff reductions as he has before. There was a unilateral things a few months ago. He'll do it again simply because he's more afraid of inflation than he is about losing leverage over China. So, Baocheng, how do American public view these tariffs? And why is the decision to reduce the Trump-era tariffs so difficult for the Biden administration? There has been a political hijack uh, that is prompt, uh, the, uh, prompted by the Trump administration, but uh, continued by the uh, Biden administration, uh, because, uh, uh, as Anna has uh, mentioned, that uh, 
some of the uh, Congress people uh, wanted to use this as a leverage uh, with China. And uh, as a matter of fact, that uh, the federal government benefits from it because uh, the uh, tariff charged goes to the coffer uh, of the federal government. So Trump felt, you know, uh, that's a happy gain. And he actually, that was... Uh, uh, literally a tax on uh, U.S. businesses and consumers that are, are dealing with made in China. And so uh, he was able to, uh, you know, ideally hit two birds with one stone to leverage with China and then also to fill the coffer. And, okay, you know, the point, you know, this is China who created the problem with you guys. You know, you buy uh, more expensive goods, etc. I'm not there to blame. It's, it's China. So, actually, the U.S. people uh, can see it uh, very clearly, and it is their uh, burden uh, on the business and on the households. So, uh, it is you know, it is high time for them to really to reduce tariff, given, as you mentioned, that 8.6% uh, of the uh, inflation. Uh, it's not only a matter of the pandemic that uh, created that, but also uh, such a, a, a trade war. And the legacy of it continued to uh, invade into uh, people's uh, livelihood. Catherine Tai, you know, uh, she is a technical bureaucrat, and she thought, okay, you know, I can really uh, play with the uh, uh, player game where, uh, you know, because I open a window for U.S. businesses to apply for exclusion of the tariff. And so that she could really exercise her authority and discretion to decide which one needs to be approved. And uh, also she hopefully, you know, she wants to uh, keep it as a bargaining chip with China for uh, some, some uh, something that can really reciprocate, although she doesn't know what can be bargained for. And uh, now, you know, Yellen and uh, many others are seeing the picture that uh, this does not work. But hope, uh, you know, it's very likely that uh, they continue to uh, gradually loosen it, uh, which is something that is not really strategically related with U.S.-defined uh, national security, but it's still they are there to focus on uh, building their small yard and high fences, uh, you know, to uh, simply bl uh, block the access uh, to China on those uh, key technologies like, you know, artificial intelligence, computing, particularly the, uh, that's something that uh, can be utilized by the military industry, etc. So uh, they are really refocusing it. But it doesn't mean that they are really capitulating to such a sort of situation. This is something that is very temporary, and uh, there is no hurry uh, for such sort of situation, even on the Chinese side. And so, Aina, so Catherine Tai said the U.S. needs to keep the tariffs to have more leverage against China in trade negotiations. But she also was talking durable coexistence and uh, said she aimed to reduce the U.S.-China tensions. So she seems to be contradicting to herself, right? And why are there different opinions within the U.S. government? Well, you know, the book 1984, written by Georgia Orwell, uh, coined this idea of doublespeak, where no one knows what you're saying because you just say the opposite things. Um, and I would agree with Professor Liu. I mean, it's just not clear where she thinks she's going. I don't know where she thinks she's getting any kind of bargaining power 
uh, with China. It's the U.S. that is facing these inflationary uh, effects as, as the U.S. is at 10, I mean, 8.6. China is at 2.3. Now, yes, the inflation in China is going to rise higher, but it's not going to be at the same level as the United States. So she's in a very bad position thinking that she can somehow use uh, something as, you know, as Professor Lin said, it's, it's not consequential to China. China is not paying for these tariffs. And quite frankly, the, the balance of good and trade going to the United States is, is bigger than ever. So at, at this juncture, this is the problem. No one knows exactly what she's trying to do and what's happening in the administration. So, Baozhang, a recent study by the U.S.-China Business Council shows that uh, the trade war reduced the economic growth and cost the U.S. 245,000 jobs. Well, the U.S. trade with China and the U.S. trade deficit hit record high since the trade war began. So what do you think about that? And what do you think is the outlook for China-U.S. trade relations? Well, uh, the U.S. thought that uh, uh, they really are there uh, to lecture on China, to push forward for a market-driven economy, and now they turn out, uh, say, okay, China is being too aggressive. And so the uh, trying to find some of the excuses, all oh, because China has uh, you know, given a lot of more subsidies to uh, export-driven businesses that that's there to be more predatory over the U.S. businesses. The true fact is not. So therefore, this is totally groundless. It is really the Chinese people who are working hard in the Chinese businesses, and together, together with global business leaders that are investing in China, who are really working hard and smart to to be more competitive. So therefore, uh, you know, when you really point to a uh, something that is a non-existent of a cause, now, of course, you cannot really find the right type of solution. Now, uh, Catherine Tai hasn't even worked out, you know, what, uh, you know, how much has been achieved. And there should be a sort of uh, uh, assessment of the actual impact, both pros and cons for the United States. Uh, and that's the job of USDR or the, uh, uh, the Department of Commerce are doing, but they are not really doing that type of job. They're just blowing with a lot, lot more rhetoric uh, that, are, uh, that can hardly be understood or, or accepted by the US people and by the people around the world. So can they really come up on doing something that is in real to substantiate? And um, because you know the many think tanks made such such a calculation, but uh, it seems that uh, they are now uh, taking a, a blind eye uh, towards the true fact of the negative impact that is caused. Uh, you know both on China, the United States, and also the rest of the world, because they are, after all, the two biggest economies that can influence the entire supply chain. Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with Liu Baocheng, professor with the University of International Business and Economics, and also Ina Tengen, senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.